Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. But we're in uh, Zechariah chapter 7. So we've spent three uh, sessions on the first six chapters. And we've got three more to go on uh, the last, uh, we've got seven Seven chapters uh, left or, or so. And so uh, what I want to do tonight is talk about chapter 7 to 9, just a bit of an overview, talking about Israel and God's plan and purposes for Israel is care for them. Sunday morning we want to look at some of the messianic references that are still here in the book. There are references to the Lord Jesus, to uh, the 30 pieces of silver, to the coming into the city of Jerusalem, uh, and a few other references. We'll look at those on Sunday morning and then uh, next week uh, we'll look at the return of Christ uh, at the end of the end of the book. And so tonight we're looking uh, more as an overview uh, to chapters uh, 7 uh, through 9. But one of the things we've been emphasizing is the difference between the interpretation, the exposition, and the application. And so when you read you want to say well this is directed to Israel. Uh, God's talking to them in a specific way. It's not, he's not addressing it to us. It's not to the church. It's not about church gathering. It's not about how we meet or any of those types of things. So you read it and you want to uh, set yourself in the context of that time. Okay, here they are. What did it mean to them? Uh, you look at the grammar. Uh, you look at the words. You look at the context and say, well, what did it mean to them? But if that's all you ever did in Scripture, that builds knowledge. But you also want to gain an appreciation and an application. And so you want to understand something about God's plan and his person, his purposes, and those types of things. And you want to feed your mind uh, with the Word of God. You know, on Sunday morning, we come to the Lord's Supper. But day by day, the Lord would have us sit at his table. And at his table, he feeds us. But he doesn't want to just feed us facts. He wants to warm our hearts, to encourage us. And so he wants us to think through the word, to fill our minds uh, with it. And in doing that, uh, we can be encouraged and enthused as we think about uh, the Lord. And so that makes the scriptures come alive. The danger, of course, is making the application the interpretation. And once you do that, then who's to say if you're right or wrong, what's the framework? Uh, we talked about Brian McLaren. We talked about the emergent church. They have a, a, a hermeneutic, we call it, a principles of interpretation called deconstructionism. And what they mean by that is what God's word says to you is what it means. And so don't worry about what it meant to them. You just read it and what it says to you today is what it means. Well, then it can mean absolutely anything. And that's why... In some of these movements, there's so much confusion. And so we want to look and say, well, what does, it, what does it mean in the context, in the setting? Now, when God is talking here in this, these two chapters, especially uh, chapter 7 and, and chapter 8, uh, four times that you have this phrase, the word of the Lord. So you see it in chapter 7, uh, verse 4, and then you see it again in verse 8. Then you see it again in chapter 8, verse 1, and again uh, in chapter 8, verse 18. 
So four different statements uh, prefaced by that phrase, the word of the Lord. Here's what God has to say. So there's, there's a movement through here. Four times God is, is saying this. Now, Zechariah is giving this discourse you know, on uh, December the 7th of 518. So he'd given, had his visions on what day of the year? What day was? February the 15th. So last Saturday was the anniversary. A week ago, Saturday was the anniversary of the visions. Eight visions in one night, and that was in 520. So here he is, about 22 months later, he's giving these messages. Now remember, in terms of our background, Haggai had stood up on August, August 29th in 520 and challenged the people it's time to get building. It's time to get working. On September 21st of that year, they started to work. And then uh, Zechariah in October, November gave the first six verses of this book as a challenge to them to repent, to return to the Lord. Uh, it ties in with what Haggai said in Haggai chapter 2, that, yeah, it's good to be doing the Lord's work, but what about holiness? And by way of application, that's an important thought as well. And that's emphasized in the New Testament. Vessels fit for the master's uh, use. And so that's the challenge. Now the temple is going on and uh, he's had these visions to encourage them. But now uh, he's going to give these addresses. Thus says the Lord four times. Now, one of the things to remember when we look at this is God deals with Israel in the Old Testament nationally. He not dealing with the nation like he deals with us as individuals. He's dealing with them nationally. So when he talks about obedience, he's talking about the nation being obedient. There are always going to be individuals who are disobedient, but he's talking about the obedience of the, the nation. Uh, individuals might go into idolatry and they were to be judged, but when the whole nation went into idolatry, then the nation was judged. Now, the Lord never deals with the church collectively in that way. He may deal with individual assemblies. That's the impact of the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, that uh, he knows what's going on. He says, if you don't repent, I'll remove that candlestick. I'll take that witness, that testimony away. But he doesn't deal corporately like he dealt with Israel nationally. Now, when he's dealing with Israel nationally, he's talking about the importance of obeying his word, obeying the commandments, obeying the ordinances. And when that happened, blessing would follow. And the blessing was relative to the land, uh, how the land produced. Was there going to be fruitfulness or a drought? Uh, Were things going to go well or things going to go poorly? Were they going to stay in the land or be removed uh, from the land? So when he's talking that way, he's not talking about heaven and hell. Uh, You know, when the Israelites came out of Exodus, uh, in Exodus, out of Egypt, they all came out under the blood of the Lamb. Only two men, uh, you know, over 40, went into Canaan. But that doesn't mean that everybody that died in the wilderness ended up in a lost eternity. And it doesn't mean that everybody that entered the land of Canaan uh, went to paradise, Uh, He's, he's dealing with them nationally. And so we have to really understand that. The Old Testament people, individuals were saved by faith, not because they kept ordinances and 
tried to obey the law. The law doesn't justify anybody, it condemns. And so Abraham was justified by faith. Uh, David, all these Old Testament saints justified exactly the same way as we are. So we have to recognize when we read a portion like this that God is dealing with them nationally. And he's saying, if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. You can't just read this and say, well, if I do these things, this is going to happen. Now, you can watch on TV, and there's health and wealth preachers who will tell you exactly that. They'll say, if you do these things, see what God promises you. And they talk about physical, visible blessings. But that's not for us. And so the application, of course, is God's looking for obedience. Well, I mentioned before, you could write over the Old Testament, uh, if you obey me, I will bless you. But over the New Testament, you can write, I have blessed you, now you obey me. Right? He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And so we've been blessed. It's up to us to obey. When we obey, we abide in fellowship with him. That's an individual thing. You might be in fellowship with him today. I may not be. It's totally individual. But here he's talking nationally. He's talking about them as a people, as a nation. So that's important to keep that in mind. Uh, When people who hold to what we call a reformed point of view look at this, they see it corporately. Okay, he was saying this to Israel. Now he's saying this to the church collectively. To Israel, it was physical, it was visible, it was the land. To the church, it's just blessings. Not about the land, but just about God's goodness to the church. If you want to just do an exercise, pick a passage in in Zechariah and Google and just say a Reformed view or a Reformed perspective on that passage. And you'll see how they look at it and then just apply it to the church. So I did that for what we looked at on Sunday morning uh, for chapter 6, verse 9 to to the end of the chapter, verse 15 a reformed perspective. And so they didn't mention anything about the branch relative to Israel. It was about God's righteousness as seen in the church. So it had nothing to do with Israel because it's a promise. It was future. So it's all to do with the church. So I hope that helps you. And and when you're reading the Old Testament, there's great value just because you can enjoy uh, what you read. But make sure you interpret it based on the context that is here. So what the context is here is stated in verse in verse 3 of chapter 7. Here's the, the question right at the end of, of that verse. Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I've done for so many years? So there's the question that generates these answers from the Lord. And he gives four statements but in response to that question. So what they're saying is, Should I go on doing this? Now, the background is this fast was a fast in August that commemorated a fast of mourning, a solemn fast that commemorated the destruction of the temple. So on August 9th in 586 BC, the temple was destroyed. And so the people of Israel fasted every year because they were commemorating or remembering or sorrowing over the fact the temple had been destroyed. Now the temple's been rebuilt. So it's a logical question. Do we keep on doing that fast? Because now the temple building is underway. Is it still a valid 
fast. Now, the Jews today still hold a, a fast, a feast day in August, August 9, 10, uh, Basha, or Tisha B'Av. And it's a feast that marks the destruction of the temple because we might say from a human perspective, ironically, the temple was destroyed twice in history on the same day of the year, which I don't know how you can you could manage that. If you were to read Josephus, who is a Roman historian, he was actually a Jew, a general in the Jewish army, but he recognized the Romans were going to win, so he went over to the Roman side and wrote a history. Uh, the Antiquities of the Jews, it's called. It's not easy reading, but he gave a, a history. And what he said in there about the attack on the temple was that Titus, the Roman general, had given instructions that the people were to be killed, but the structure was to be saved because it was one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. It was spectacular. Remember, Herod has spent 46 years building that temple, beautifying it. And so Titus wanted to save the structure. But when they attacked on the morning of August 9, one of the soldiers threw a firebrand into a storeroom. And that the stuff in there caught on fire and the temple started to burn. Uh, remember the Lord Jesus had said in Matthew 24, not one stone would be left upon another. Well, how would that ever happen? Well, what happened is the heat from that fire, the gold band that was around the top of the temple melted and the gold ran down, but in the crevices of those rocks. And so in order to get to the gold, they dismantled the temple uh, rock by rock. If you or today go on the southern steps of the temple. Over on the left-hand side, there are some of those large uh, rocks, large stones that have been pushed off the temple mount are still there from 2,000 years ago. And so the Lord Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. Not one stone left upon another. And as a result of that fire and the gold running down, that's exactly what happened. So in spite of what Titus said, save the structure, the Lord's word came true and the structure was was destroyed. So they're asking about that feast day. Now it's interesting, uh, this is just a by the way, if you were to Google things that happened to Jews on that day in history, there are quite a few things that happened on that day. That was the day in 1290 where they were expelled from England. The Jews were expelled from England. The same day of the year they were expelled later on from from Spain. That's the day the Spanish Inquisition started. That's the day the Holocaust started. And so there's a lot of things sort of for whatever reason tied with that day in, in history. And so no wonder they're asking, should I keep on doing this feast? Does it have validity? And so they could ask that today. And so the Lord gives uh, these four answers to that question. The first answer is a, a word of rebuke. The second one is a reminder of what has happened to them. The third word is about restoration, what's going to happen to them. And the fourth is about the return uh, to the land. And so it's sort of a progression. And he starts with a word of rebuke. What were you up to? And then uh, he gives them a reminder why they were judged, why these things happened to them. And then he talks about the future restoration of Israel and the return or regathering of the people to Israel. So it's a very logical progression. So when you think of this again, that's the context, that's the setting. 
nothing to do with us, uh, not about the church, not about the Christian life. It's about Israel uh, historically and what happened to them and what God was going to to do uh, with that. Now, before we look at it, let me just say this too about Israel. Uh, in the Old Testament, of course, as we saw in Zechariah, he calls them the apple of my eye, the preciousness. Israel, my glory. They are precious to the Lord. They are set aside today. But historically, people hate the Jewish nation for whatever reason, what we call anti-Semitism. I think I explained that comes from the word Shem. It's Noah's son. Everybody that descended from him, we would call a Shemite or a Semite. And so the Arabs, the Asians, and the Jews are all Semitic people. And about 250 years ago, this this word was coined anti-Semitism. Now, it doesn't apply to Asians and Arabs, but it applies to the Jewish people, the hatred of the Jewish people. Uh, Today, just today, there was a poll released. I saw it on Fox News this morning online that uh, a poll in Europe, 20% of the people that were polled believe that there's a group of Jews who run the economy of the world. They they believe that, 20% of the people in Europe. Now, I don't know how big the poll was or anything, but that's what it said, 20% of the people believe Uh, And all around the world, anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jew. Uh, Just last week in Iran, they said their goal was to eradicate, get rid of Zionism, to get rid of the the Jewish people. And yet God has maintained them. We'll talk a bit more about that. But but, uh, it's so true in the world, the hatred of the Jewish people. So anyway, they asked this question, and God God gives an answer, and let's read in verse 4 then, chapter 7, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous, and the south and the lowland uh, were inhabited. So God's answer is, should we keep this? He says, well, when you did it, why were you doing it? Were you doing it out of culture, out of habit? Uh, or is it something you were doing out of fear for me, out of love for me, out of response, out of respect uh, for me? And so he's just asking that, that question. So, again, the context has nothing to do with us, has everything to do with them. But if you and I were going to read this and say, well, what could an application be? What might I learn from this? Well, what about our activities for the Lord? What about our devotion to the Lord? Do we do it just because it's habit? What about the Lord's Supper? Do we enjoy it? Do we do it because we enjoy coming and remembering him? Or do we do it just because if I don't come, the people are going to say, what's wrong with him? Where is he today? Why did he sleep in? What's he doing today? Uh, And so why do we do what we do? So that's application. We can read this and say, well, those people just fell into a ritual. They were doing it without thinking. Could that happen to me? And so you read this and you stop to think and say, yes, maybe I've got to take a lesson or learn something uh, from this. And so... Uh, the Lord says to them, you should have listened when things were going well. 
back when everything was going well, you should have listened. But prosperity is a great danger to our love for the Lord and our walk for the Lord. It's been said that the church is far better designed to live under persecution than under prosperity. And that's very true, isn't it? So he goes on then to say in verse 8 to the end of the chapter, this is why this happened. This is why these things took place. For instance, in verse 11, they refused to heed. Verse 13, therefore it happened just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear. So they called out, and I would not listen. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. So God says, here's the consequence. Uh, You didn't listen then. You disobeyed. You were scattered. The Jews, of course, were scattered to or sent to Babylon and scattered through the world at that time. But then it happened again in 132 after Bar Kappa rebelled against the Romans. As we mentioned, the Romans changed the name to Palestine from Philistines, uh, the ancient enemy of Israel, and depopulated the land. And so they were gone, dispersed all through the world. There are perhaps 17 million Jews in the world today, 6.5 million in Israel, 6.5 million in the U.S. Uh, the next largest population is France, and then there's what, four, just over 400,000 in Canada. But they've been scattered all over. And so the Lord says that's the consequence, that's the result. So again, he's not talking to the church because he's not doing this to the church. Like I said, if you looked at this in an Oxford uh, KGV, at the top it would say, curses for Israel. But when you get the next page and it talks about good things, it'll say blessings for the church. It might be on the same, uh, facing each other. The one is bad, it's for Israel. The other one's good, it's got to be uh, for the church. And so he says, here's the consequences. Here's where where that's going. Because you would not... You would not listen. And so they uh, were scattered. And it's true uh, for the last 2,000 years. They've been scattered and they've been persecuted as well. Uh, chapter 8 then, he says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's, here's the things that are going to happen. So in verse 3, chapter 8, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Look at verse 6. Now says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, I will bring them back, and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And so God says it's going to happen. They're going to return to the land. Now, Jews are returning in record numbers because there's so much anti-Semitism, both in France and other countries, but especially in France. There has been typically in Russia, so lots of Russian Jews have come back to Israel as well. But it's not the regathering to the total or to the extent that Scripture talks about, but it's a precursor. Uh, It is a remarkable thing that Israel is in the land. Let me just give you a a little brief history. I don't know if you uh, 
liked history in high school, but I enjoy history. And uh, it's, it's so intriguing that the Jews are in the land. Back uh, 200, just over 200 years ago in Britain, the seventh Earl of Shatsbury, who was a contemporary of William Wilberforce, who was responsible for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, he was a believer. And he felt uh, from his view of scripture that the Lord wouldn't come back till the Jews were in a, a homeland of their own. His plan was to buy a parcel of land in Uganda that would become a Jewish homeland. And so that was his view. Uh, some of you may know what the Dreyfus Affair was. A French lieutenant, Jewish lieutenant, was charged with treason and tried unfairly. And out of that, a man by the name of Theodore Herzl had a, a conference and the Zionist movement started. And their plan or goal was to get a homeland for Israel. In the Second or First World War, uh, Britain was in danger of running out of an ingredient for gunpowder. It's called cordite. And there was a Jewish chemist in Britain by the name of Heim Wiseman. And he found out that from chestnuts, you could make a synthetic. You could do this. So after the war, they wanted to reward him. And his, his desire for reward was a homeland for the Jewish people. He became the first president of Israel in 1948, Heim Wiseman. But the Belfort Declaration gave them uh, a holding there. And of course, on May 14th, 1948, they declared statehood. It's just miraculous. If you want a secular history of 1948, a book called Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, a wonderful secular history of really of God's providence and care for the Jewish people. So there they are back in the land and they start to gather from all sorts of places. Now there's six and a half million of them uh, back in the land. So what this chapter does is it gives a, a an intermediate fulfillment because this happened after Babylon. They started coming back, but it gives a further fulfillment, a full fulfillment in the future. And often prophecy is like that. It gives a partial and then a fuller. That's what Peter did on Pentecost when he said, here's what Joel was speaking about in Joel chapter 2. They will speak with other tongues and so on. Well, that's going to have a full fulfillment uh, when the Jews come back to, to Christ. But uh, here is a partial fulfillment that they did return to the land, but it has a future fulfillment. God's going to bring them back to the land again in a future day. And then his last word in verse 18 to the end of the chapter is, uh, we'll read from there, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, uh, we'll go down to verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will also go. Yes, many people and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve or the garment of a Jewish man, saying, let us go up or go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What a change will take place when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again. The Jews are settled in the land and people will recognize that these are God's people, God's chosen people. This will be the end of anti-Semitism. 
because they'll recognize in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, that God's blessing does rest there. Uh, the borders of Israel will go from the Nile River to the Euphrates River. When you study the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, it's just an amazing transformation. We'll see uh, later on in chapter 14 some of the things that happen when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period. And so uh, anti-Semitism will come to an end. That's hard to believe in our world. Uh, Somewhere I read that there are 109 nations that have expelled the Jews over history. 109 nations have kicked them out over time. Britain did it, France did it, Spain did it. All sorts of nations have said, we don't want, we don't want these people. It's been said that more Jews died in Europe from the Crusades than Muslims did in the Middle East, in Israel. On the way to fight the Muslims, many of those Crusaders killed Jews on the way. Uh, There are words that have come into the English language that speak of that. The Holocaust pogrom in uh, Russia, the Inquisition in Spain. These are all persecutions of the Jewish people, just expressing that hatred that people have uh, within them. John Phillips used a line. He says, uh, anti-Semitism is endemic. That is, it's in people, but sometimes it becomes epidemic. It breaks out and you see the evidence of it. And we see it even in North America, shootings and synagogues and graffiti and, and uh, tombstones defaced and all sorts of things. Sometimes we hear it in the language. I mean, it wasn't was it two months ago that uh, somebody in Washington used the word Benjamin in a derogatory way. They were talking uh, in an anti-Semitic way about uh, Jewish influence. And so... Uh, this will come to an end when when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again. The Jews are regathered to the land and people will recognize, no, these are God's people and God's blessing uh, rests upon them. So the Lord Jesus gave a parable. He talked about the fig tree. In Matthew 21, he cursed a fig tree. In Matthew 24, he talked about the fact when you see the fig tree coming back to life, he said, this generation will not pass away. Now in the context, he's talking about the the tribulation period the word genealogy or generation likely refers to the jewish people and so even though he was speaking in the first century he said this people will still be here when this takes place uh, and over two thousand years that has happened when you see that fig tree come to life well in some ways we're seeing it come to life today the lord cursed the fig tree because it had leaves but it had no fruit So today, again, it has leaves, but it has no fruit. But one day, it will become fruitful again. And so the Lord's hand on his people. And so the question, what about this fast? And the Lord gives all this answer. Why are you doing it? Uh, What's the purpose of it? You should have listened. You should have obeyed. And so as you read it, uh, you can appreciate God's care and concern for his people, his plan and his purpose is what's going to come to pass. Now, chapter 9, we're not going to spend much time on. Let me just give you a, a brief thought here. It's, uh, it's really historical, chapter, at least the first eight verses. Now, it's written uh, in language that's not sort of straightforward. It's not, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. If we 
read something, we'd, we'd want to say, well, boom, 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 here's the chronology, here's how it goes. But in the first eight verses, it really is a description of Alexander the Great coming to destroy these, these nations. And Alexander did that. Verse 2, Tyre and Sidon. Well, Sidon, Sidon surrendered, but Tyre did not. If you were to read in Ezekiel uh, 20, 26, the fall of Tyre. It's an amazing story. You can Google it and look at it. Just an amazing account how Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged the city for 13 years. And the people just moved to an island off the mainland. Alexander came and he didn't have 13 years because in 13 years after he started, he was dead. So in seven months, he captured that island by scraping bare the city that was on the mainland and building a causeway, just like Ezekiel said would happen. And he took the city. So these verses here describe the campaign of Alexander. Now, he didn't come till 200 years after Zechariah is writing this. So 200 years later, the city of Tyre fell and these other things happened. And so that's, that's remarkable. When you look at the end of the chapter, verse 14 to verse 17, it is a near fulfillment and a fuller fulfillment. The nearer fulfillment is to do with what's called the Maccabees. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked in a, say, a Roman Catholic Bible. They have other books in there that we don't have, that they claim are what we would say is canonical. They claim as part of the Word of God. Uh, we would say, no, they are, there's contradictions in those books. Some, are, some of the books are historical. Uh, some are hysterical. But um, they are not uh, part of the canon. But uh, two of them are the books of the Maccabees. The Maccabees were a family. So a man by the name of Judas Maccabees rebelled against uh, the, the Syrians, against Antiochus Epiphanes, and he and his sons uh, led a revolt. And though they were outnumbered, uh, they repelled and, and pushed out the Syrians. They actually cleansed the temple. You may remember that Antiochus Epiphanes offered a pig on the altar, and he set up a statue of Zeus uh, in the temple. And so on December 25th, 165 B.C., the Maccabees cleansed the temple and worship started again. And what's that feast today for the Jewish people? Who knows? Hanukkah, the festival of lights, right? So that's what they commemorate, the cleansing of the temple back in 165. And that's why it's at the same time as we celebrate uh, Christmas. And so in verses 14 to 17, it's an allusion to them, but then it goes beyond them and again looks to the future. And so if you look at verse 16, the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his head, for how great is its goodness and how great is its beauty. Now the word its there should be perhaps better translated as his. How great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine young women. So he says, God's goodness is going to be seen and how he responds. So Jews may look back and wonder, why has all this happened to us? But the Lord is not finished with Israel. Romans 11:26. all Israel will be saved. There's coming a day when they'll turn back uh, to the Lord. 
when by faith what will happen is seen in chapter 12, verse, verse 10. It says, I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. That's by the eye of faith. That's before he comes back again. But they'll recognize that, yes, we rejected the Messiah, the one who was pierced. And they will mourn as a result. They'll come in repentance and the Lord will deal with them again. And so in the millennial kingdom, Israel will have its place. Now, in here, I think I mentioned the word Zion is used. Zion is just a poetic word for Jerusalem. And so when you see the word Zion, uh, we're marching to Zion. It's just a poetic word uh, for Jerusalem. So anyway, there we are on Sunday morning, Lord willing. We'll look at a few passages uh, that speak of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of just remarkable things uh, that Zechariah says about the 30 pieces of silver and about the entrance into Jerusalem uh, that we can look at and enjoy on Sunday morning, Lord willing. Uh, if the Lord comes before then, I'll let him explain it. But Lord willing, we'll look at it on Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, again bring before you these requests that were made. Uh, we recognize that you are a God who answers prayer. You hear and you're willing to answer in your time and in your will. Your answer may be no, it may be wait, it may be yes, but we pray in your will that your will would be done. We think of the persecuted church. We think of the church and believers in countries that are experiencing difficulty because of this virus, and we commit these uh, dear saints to you. Put your hand upon them and uh, strengthen them. We thank you that your grace is sufficient regardless of the circumstances of life. We do pray, Father, for every need represented in this room and ask, Father, that your will again would be worked out in lives, that as we work through issues and deal with life, that uh, we would become more like the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and respond in such a way. We thank you too for your word. We thank you for the thrill of studying it and for application to our life, the fact that we can just think on these things and meditate on them. And so, Father, we're thankful for that. We do commit ourselves to you in the Savior's name. Amen.